This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blenders. It's Sean, and we are here with a bonus episode of Real Blend because we managed to get uh, Peyton Reed and Jessica Bendiger to sit down for an anniversary retrospective interview for Bring It On. I know that this is hard to believe, but the cheerleading comedy is turning 20 years old. And I know that that means that you wonder if there are any Toros in the atmosphere or if Missy is still the poo. Well, I made sure to ask all of those questions to both Peyton Reed and Jessica Bendinger. So without further ado, let's throw it to our conversation for Bring It On 20 Years Later here on Riblet. So today I had a really fun day because I uh, just did the Tenant junket as well too oh wow and we had christopher nolan on the show and so i watched bring it on this morning uh in preparation for christopher nolan (laughs) (laughs) what a good double that's such a good double great double feature now that you mentioned chris nolan i feel really underdressed (laughs) (laughs) he did look spiffy he did look spiffy um earlier this year i was able to interview uh amy heckerling and i asked her a question that i want to throw to you guys as well too uh the teen genre when done properly feels like something that we should be overdosing on as an industry Um, it's an audience that is constantly looking for stories that are about them and that speak to them and when one of them comes along whether it's eighth grade um or perks of being a wallflower uh, the people do really latch onto them why is it so hard to get these movies made uh, in the industry nowadays? Mm. Oh, that's a rich, rich question. 
Peyton, do you want to go first? And then I'll, I'll try to put synthesize yeah. mine into something. And maybe I'm wrong from this perspective. They seem to me that they would be lower budget and that you could try your hand at some talent that, that needs to have a platform to shine. Um, you guys had a young cast that had some talent, but you guys really did launch them. Like this feels like something we should be doing more often. I agree with you. I mean, you know, at the time, 20 years ago, we were a $10, $11 million movie, which was uh, on the absolute low end for what Universal Studios was making at the time. And as a result, you know, we were left alone a lot during the shoot, which was great. We were shooting in San Diego and could sort of like, you know, uh, make decisions on our own, which was great. Uh, the big studios now, I mean, even then, but especially now, uh, don't really have that much interest in making movies in that budgetary range because they still have mm -hmm. to spend a lot on advertising and digital prints and all that. And it feels like uh, with the advent of streaming, a lot of that is moving towards streaming, uh, mm. which there are a lot of really nice, uh, you know, between the series and the, and the made for streaming movies, there's some really good high school stuff there. But it's important to me for two reasons. One, it's um, there are always stories where high, high school is a real microcosm of the world. And I think you can deal with, you know, larger themes in the context of high school. And, and many movies have done that historically. But also, I think it's important, like you said, they're lower budget movies. and you know, it's a good thing to kind of let young filmmakers, up and comers, you know, have a shot and go from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? I think tweens and teenagers, given the proliferation of new platforms also, like uh, we are competing with a level of exponential scale right now in sure. terms of smartphones that didn't exist when we made Bring It On. And I think that the audience has fragmented considerably. And I think that's harder for studios, certainly legacy media companies, to justify that investment given the fragmenting of attention. I think, uh, yeah, Netflix is paying attention to the algorithm and you can mm -hmm. see from the programming that they know sure. this is where there is value. I think it's really challenging for legacy media companies to keep up with the tech platforms. I think that okay. is not a fair fight. Uh, we know it's not a fair fight, and I hope, um, I hope the trend towards quality entertainment and not kind of garbage tween entertainment. I, I hope that yeah. continues. Um, sure. But listen, listen, when you're a kid, we all liked a crappy boy band or two. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we don't have liked. we we I loved we loved so um, and many of them. And so yeah. I think. Given that there is a high churn and a high turnover for this audience, it is mm. hard as an asset allocation and an asset category for these companies to place bets there. I think that's okay. just unfortunately where we're at. But you're right. Because um, when they're right, meaningful, wanna... when they're meaningful, they're so meaningful. Oh, of course. And it breaks my heart that that you guys might not have gotten a chance to make a movie like this, you know, which so many of us hold really dear. Um, the I want you guys to take me back through the audition process and what you guys remember about it. Um, Honestly, like we can't imagine anyone else but the actors that you picked in these roles, but how difficult was it to find the right personalities uh, to fit these characters? And who did you get first and who played off of who? Jessica, well, you, you yeah. were involved with a couple of actors before I even entered the picture, so. Yeah, we had a reading um, before we were lucky enough to get Peyton. There was a reading and Gabrielle Union played Isis, mercifully, luckily, and Eliza played Missy. Okay. And so that was really 
very fortuitous because we weren't greenlit. It was just like a staged reading. And then uh, they clearly stepped into the DNA of that role from Jump. And then Peyton, and then it was like Kiki was on, (laughs) as she's lovingly known, was on another movie. And Peyton had to like really intervene and give her the hard sell. Um, Because she was a hot, she was a very, you know, respected commodity back then and still is. Yeah, she was, she had just turned 17 when we made the movie and she was doing a movie, I think, in the Czech Republic. And we got on the phone and, you know, talked about what this movie could be and and, uh, the tone of it and everything. And and she signed on and, you know, things fell into place really quickly. But casting wise, we saw so many people for all the, you know, the secondary and, and tertiary roles. And they had to be able to be funny and also be able to dance and and they had to prepare a cheer when they came in. Sean, I will say one person came in and did a toe touch, not an actor anybody knows, and ripped their pants wide open. Uh, Joseph Middleton and I were like, (laughs) 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 don't look up, where do you look, poor thing. And she just had to like take off a cardigan, wrap it around and be like, yeah. You later. Oh, oh yeah. no. <laughs> but hey, look, yeah, that's what you have to be prepared for when you're doing a movie like this. Um, so going back through it, you know, I think for me it's it's burr, it's cold in here. You know, there must be some Toros in the atmosphere. That's that's the one that anytime anyone mentions the title, that jumps to mind. But going back and revisiting it, there's just so many other lines that hit me. Um, but I'm wondering what's the one you guys hear the most or have heard the most from from fans who come up and approach you. Missy's the poo. <laughs> take a big whiff yeah <laughs> that's the one yeah yeah and i'm sexy the people launch into the opening cheer quite a bit right, hey, right. what do you get yeah what do people say to you i get birds cold in here that's that's by far number one yeah and then that opening cheer is something that particularly if it's uh you know a friend of mine's kid who's in the cheerleading or something they will launch into that opening cheer which it, it has to be said from the first time i read jessica's script that cheer was there verbatim. We didn't change a thing in that. And so uh, that, and that is the, the test of time, no question. I would love to know when you guys realized you had a hit. When, when did you, was it during test screenings? Was it, or was it closer to opening weekend? I think it was about 9.20 PM on that Friday night that it opened. <laughs> <laughs> that was no. my memory. I'll show you my favorite picture. I'm showing a picture of Peyton and I on the phone getting the right. call that it was number one. Oh my And gosh. I have this, it's a treasure. And uh, it was really like that. Like Wait, do you guys, do you guys remember the movies that you opened up against? Oh yes, we do. <laughs> I remember, yeah. Because, I, it was, what do you mean? It was, what do you mean? You didn't know the Art of War was supposed to win that weekend? Yeah. <laughs> the Wesley Snipes vehicle? Yeah, it was by a long shot. We were really thinking like, okay, we know we're gonna at least, we're gonna be second. Are we gonna be second? Maybe we're gonna be third, fourth. How far down the line are we gonna be? I mean. Yeah. We were going to market with a competitive cheerleading comedy, and you just don't know. I mean, there's the tracking seemed good, but um, people showed up, and we were driving around opening night looking at theaters, and Jessica and I, I think we're both thrilled, like, oh, wow, there are people in the seats. <laughs> that, that's good, right? I mean, that seems like a, a positive sign. Uh, it was really sweet, and Kirsten got really emotional, which Peyton reminded me of this, this little renaissance we're having revisiting she got really emotional uh, when her agent called her it was very sweet it was so cute again she was 17 and she's on the phone and 
the agent told her we were going to be number one and she hung up and she's like i have my first number one movie (laughs) (laughs) but guys wait take it even one step further too because i know you stay number one through labor day and that's pretty significant to have a holiday weekend number one and to maintain that audience but Um, I i think to what your original question was people really underestimate this audience and i think when you have a, an underserved audience they're very mm-hmm. hungry and they're going to talk to each other and they do repeat viewings right so back then like if you loved it there's a high chance i bet people saw it twice right um, true and uh i think it's a it's a highly engaged highly underserved audience so when you hit the sweet spot with something they love they go again and again and again okay um and peyton just talk about in the edit putting it together. You must have had confident, like how confident were you in, that it was snapping together? And even still, like I know you're, you're really significant um, music background and and the music that you chose for this was monumental. Honestly, I, I kind of think the Mickey, you know, end credits is something that you send the audience out on a high. You know, it's, par- it's part of the reason why it has some staying power to it. If you could just talk to me about the song choices that you came up with. And I, I kind of researched it today. The band that plays... Um, that plays Jesse's song is Rufus King. That's right. Um, Cause they're really catchy. Clearly you like sort of power pop punk rock type stuff. Yeah. No, I was, it was all through that. Yeah. I, I was a fan of all that stuff. And, and for Rufus King, it was interesting because Billy Gottlieb, who was our music supervisor found that band and they had this sort of California punk pop sound that felt like if Cliff had a, a sound, that would be a sound. And they, you know, we gave them some sort of, lyrical suggestions and what he needed to do in the story. And they came back with this amazing song. And I only recently learned that that band broke up, I think a week before the movie came out and they were, they were poised to like, Oh, here's a song in this major movie. And they had, they had broken right, up. Right. But um, the movie though, not technically a musical, I think is about as close to a musical as you can be without being a musical. It's just wall to wall music, whether it's the cheerleader mixes or Cliff's music or, uh, Chris Beck's score. Um, but it was important that this movie almost feel like a cheerleader, like in the way that the camera moves and the way the music does it, it needed to have this positivity and this enthusiasm and music obviously was a huge part of that. Did you guys come up on musicals? Um, like just ones that soundtracks to just drove yourself through? You must have, I'm sure. Yes. Are you kidding me? Those John Hughes soundtracks. I think I had the She's having a baby. Like I had the, yeah. <laughs> I had, great, I had great every context. format, every format. Uh, <laughs> he had John, he, uh, so many great soundtracks for his movies, right? Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, sure. Breakfast Club, obviously legendary, 16 Candles. But uh, another shout out to Billy Gottlieb, I want to say. Uh, he, so in the script, I had written this song cue that da 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 uh, that, that the Toros oh, yeah. do and then the Clovers do as Let Me Clear My Throat, which oh, was okay. a very expensive song cue. And Billy, bless his heart, found the sample, which was done by DJ Mark, the 45 King, and pulled that sample out. So even though, so it sounds like a song you know, it's just the sample isolated, which was a stroke of genius. And really, I, he has to get high fives, high fives for making that happen from script to screen, like right. amazing. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, okay, let's get to uh, the legendary character of um, Sparky Pulaski. Pulastri. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to break it. Oh, Pulastri, I'm sorry. One of my best friends from middle school, her last name. So it's Pulastri. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, where does where does he come from? Where Where is he? How is he born into the project? And I think he comes along at a really important part where they almost need to be um, 
you know, almost course corrected in, in a very unique way. <laughs> like, and, yes. <laughs> and that's what happens to them through it. Where did he come from? Yes. I will say, you know, Ian and Peyton did an amazing job elevating that character and taking, you know, hitting out of the comedy ballpark. But it's based on a movie I was obsessed with, Smile. Michael Ritchie and Michael Kidd, who's a very famous choreographer and dancer from the That's Entertainment days. Right. He plays Tommy, the choreographer, and I was obsessed. He was so mean to the contestants, <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. And so he was kind of a descendant. Sparky is a descendant of Tommy. And is there a lot of stuff left with him on the cutting room floor? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Ian, you know, Ian is a very famous improver with Upright Citizens Brigade. He's one of the founding members, and he, I had done uh, a couple of seasons of their show on Comedy Central. And, and when I was in New York working on that, we'd go see them improv every Sunday night. And he just had kind of what that character needed, which is, as Jessica was saying, this kind of anger and this rage. And I always thought of him as this very low rent, uh, you know, choreographer who was a pill popper and, you know, uh, worshiped Bob Fosse at one point in his, his life and, and copped his whole sense of style, um, but was just an absolute crook. <laughs> and I love the idea of pitting his energy against these very innocent, these, these high school kids. And, and, uh, and Ian definitely brought all that energy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's some stuff on the cutting room floor. We would love to, I would love to revisit Sparky. We've been talking about this. Like, where is he now? What, what is the Sparky, what is the Sparky cinematic universe look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's his prequel? What's his yeah. sequel? You know. It's dark. It's dark. It's dark. Yeah, <laughs> Peyton, I was talking to Peyton. I'll never, I was like sitting on the floor. I was like, what do you think? And he's like, have you seen Better Call Saul? <laughs> that would be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really curious too. Nowadays, we're in an age of franchises and sequels immediately. Um, and after this hit, did they come after you guys to try to put together something relatively quickly with the cast and come up with an idea to continue the story? I mean, obviously, we know that there are sequels to this, but... They didn't actually. And I'm trying to think, you know, for me, it was a couple of things. I think it was right at that time where Universal... what DVD was just at its peak. And our movie came out on DVD and went gangbusters. I mean, so many people discovered it on, on DVD. And they were, at the time, I think, uh, they did some American Pie sequels and Skulls, and then they decided they were going to do that with Bring It On. Um, I had, uh, I think by that time, I was already prepping my second movie, Down With Love. But no, never got the call. <laughs> never got the call. Jessica? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there was a business decision that the scale of which was undeniable for them. And so they made that decision and decided to go in the made for direction. And sure. it was very lucrative for them. Jessica, I'm curious, was there ever a version in a screenplay draft that you were going through where the Toros won? Never. Never? No. Okay. From pitch. And I'm about to publish the outline, a little screen, a book that's the draft of the script and the outline. And then even in the outline, the Clovers win. Okay. But that's good. That's important. That's the message that I think all of us should be taking that's, away. From. That's the movie. I mean, that is that's the movie in in terms of the the message we wanted to put in there, and just like the whole the positivity of the thing of this theme that Jessica had from the very beginning. Of I remember reading it and reading that opening cheer and thinking like this is really fun, and it was hilarious all the way throughout. And then it sort of started to seed in a very serious theme, which was this cultural appropriation that this five time national champion team it was all built on the backs of someone else's work it was stolen right and that to me was like wow this thing is um underneath this frothy colorful energetic uh 
you know, candy coating of this movie, there's a real serious theme going on. Well, and, and one element of it, too, is that in a in a scenario that things could have been extremely exaggerated and broad, um, you know, Torrance and, and Big Red, these are all very believable characters. Um, did you guys have conversations throughout the process of it, of making sure that you didn't go too far into satire to still make it credible and, and grounded? Well, I feel like that was sort of, you know, it was there in the script. And, and I think it was something that we, I know I worked on it every single day, just tonally with the actors and with the scenes about you didn't want it to fly off into something that was so exaggerated that the audience couldn't hold on to something. I think casting was a huge part of that. The people that we cast, these, you know, actors who could sort of do the dramatic stuff and, and wanted to create dimensionalized characters. But also I think that um, the tone where we landed, it was, you know, for the people who were already into competitive cheerleading, uh, I think they were psyched to see that sport dealt with as a sport. And for the people who had no grounding with it, you know, you had characters like Missy and, and Cliff who were the audience's eyes and ears and way into this very strange subculture. So tone was really important. Yeah, and I think Peyton had a unique advantage like that I couldn't see at the time having directed so much comedy and his UCB background. Like we, the toothbrush scene was Peyton said, you know, I really think with all that's going on, this breathless pace and all this stuff, there needs to be a moment of ventilation and a moment of quiet. And um, I'm so glad, you know, that was his idea. And we sat and I cranked out the scene and it's become such a legendary moment mm -hmm. because I, it stands out. It stands out as a moment of grounded, sweet ventilation and all this kind of breathless activity. So I'm really, uh, I'm really credit Peyton with that. Uh, Peyton, have you filmed a cooler? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't, don't try and arbitrate. <laughs> <laughs> have you filmed a, uh, a cooler character introduction than Missy showing up at the gym for the tryout? <sighs> Uh, oh my God, it's so good. I think, well, the one that gives the run for his money is, is Gabrielle Union's intro in the same movie. I, I really wanted everybody, <laughs> the, all those major characters to have a heightened introduction into the movie. Um, and that was one of the fun things. I, you know, they all get them. Kirsten's character has a Busby Berkeley uh, musical number to intro her. And when we yeah. finally meet uh, Isis in the Clover's Gym, you know, we come in very low angle and, you know, she is, okay. raises her arms and the place goes silent. And even Cliff, we follow Cliff's, you know, converse tennis shoes through the hallway and come up to see him. Like giving these very heightened intros to the characters to me was was important in this movie. Can you talk too just about um, taking control of a set for your first movie uh, and having that cast uh, to be at your back? I mean, this, it's going to be, you know, that's always going to be your first film. Yeah. How did you feel as a filmmaker? How did you feel tackling that? What, what were those days like? Well, I mean, I, I felt like a camp counselor because, you know, everybody was really, really young. <laughs> and my biggest job was to keep everybody confident and positive and to harness all that insane teenage energy that was going on. And I benefited greatly from all those actors and their energy and encouraged them to bring a lot of themselves to those roles. So it's weird in hindsight, you know, 20 years later, which is still nuts to me, <laughs> thinking it's been that long, um, I have such positive memories. I can't think of a better first movie to have made. I mean, I, you know, it just, it felt, it felt charmed. I don't know. I mean, it, it really, from the first time I read Jessica's draft to when we were that Friday night when it opened and we were riding around, it just felt like a charm. And I remember Mark Abraham 
one of the producers of the movie, like he pulled me aside. He's like, I want you to remember. He's from Kentucky. He said, I want you to remember tonight because you're never going to have another night like this in your entire career. And he was right. (laughs) Uh, Okay. But, but wait, we're looking around at the landscape and we have a Bill and Ted movie in theaters (laughs) and there's a a show called Cobra Kai on Netflix, (laughs) which is bringing back the protagonist of the Karate Kid. Yeah. You know, Jessica, you say you guys are having a renaissance, but there's no reason why it can't continue. Have you ever batted around the idea of just revisiting these characters? Oh, uh, we've done more than bat. Yeah, we've definitely, we've tossed. We've <laughs> we've done tosses, <laughs> we've bandied, we'd whatever you verb you want. Yes, we've talked about it. We really would love to do it. And I think we were, you know, will this would the stars align? Is everybody available? All that. But yeah, Peyton and I we intermittently over the years, yes. And he, you know, and it goes from the absurd to the sublime, you know, all, all the, the variations, like, where are they now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, right. You know, sure. Yes, we'd love that. I would love it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, um, let's just talk a bit about staying creative uh, in these bizarro times. Um, how are you guys tackling that? Um, is it much harder to, to sort of keep those creative juices flowing? Or have you found that with this time that we've been blessed, uh, that you're tackling more stuff or able to give more attention to things that maybe in a more hectic pace we weren't able to do? Well, the Zoom fatigue is real, right? So even if you're, <laughs> I mean, Peyton's dealing with time zones and stuff and he's got a lot more... Um, Zooms, but yeah, the Zoom fatigue is real. And so I think mm. it's been trying to parse that out. But certainly it's, as a writer, you're uniquely positioned to be okay for the first two months of COVID. I was like, this just feels like normal life. And now it's like, oh, I'm drooping. Like this is, I need. we all need the to fill your well somehow. And you run out of way. I've been running out of ways to fill my well. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. No, so we're, it's we're, real. what are we, I, almost six months into this thing? And it's, listen, it's deeply strange, no matter what you're doing, yeah. whether you're working, whether you're not working. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing, uh, we can do remotely. But as Jessica said, you get a little Zoom fatigue. Um, and uh, I also have kids who are doing school downstairs in the house at the same time. It's challenging, but it, it you know, I think there have been times definitely where it's like, okay, I don't have to get in the car in LA and commute and do any of that. That's kind of nice. But you know, so many people are hurting right now and it's really, really hard. It's, you know, it's hard to really talk about, you know, any possible positive aspects of it. It's just, um, yeah. you know, I hope that, I hope that we can get a vaccine and, and everybody can be out from under this. It's great. Right. Um, I can tell you that I've been able to go back to the theaters twice um, this past week. Oh, what been... did you see? What did you see, and how was it? Yeah. So I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, and, uh, nice, nice. South Carolina theaters are open. I grew- no, I know. Peyton, my son is a junior in high school, and and Chapel Hill is his number one school. Oh, so nice. Send some send some positive vibes his way, I'll please. Do it. I'll do it. <laughs> please. So I went to see Tenant. I went to go see it before the pre-screening, and then I went to see the New Mutants on Friday. And listen, it's it's different, um, and everyone's being really cautious. But it is, it, it's feeling slightly like we're turning the corner at the very least and edging back towards normal. And I know that every place is different, and and everyone's threshold is completely different. But it does somewhat feel like we're seeing a light. Um, at the end of the tunnel for our industry. I hope so, so I hope that you guys are, I, I hope you guys are able to dive right back into it and uh, and continue to create. So um, I will get you guys out of here on this one. Uh, Peyton, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, where are you at with Ant-Man 3? Um, what, are you kicking around ideas? Are you at a script stage? I know like the more that Marvel sort of gets delayed and pushes their dates back, I would think that it gives creatives like yourself more time to refine. 
Well, that hasn't been a positive thing. We're listen. I can't say too much, but we're definitely moving forward, and uh, and we're able to work remotely, which is nice. And yeah, I think it is good having a little sort of hitting pause a little bit creatively has been nice to sort of step back and step out of it a little bit and sort of um, it definitely informs the creative process on that movie. And I'm mm -hmm. sorry that's so incredibly vague, but there's a Marvel sniper who might. I can tell you there aren't going to be any clovers in the Ant-Man 3. Sorry. If you were expecting if you were expecting clovers, I don't think it's going to happen. How do you know? That is an absolute shame. <laughs> um, I do have a specific question, Peyton. I'm sorry. Now, I just thought of it now yeah. while I was on the phone with you. And it's, I always thought, like, if I ever get a chance to speak to you about this. We were in Savannah. Um, I'm trying to think when we were there. During your filming. Up, yeah. And they, they had dressed a set to look like a Moroccan street for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I can't wait to see what that's going to be. It was actually and a seat, it, it was a street dressed as Buenos Aires. Oh, Buenos and Aires. It was, okay. a, it was a whole flashback sequence that we shot uh, and then ended up cutting entirely out of the movie because it just, it was too much backstory. It was too slow. There's little bits of the, uh, little bits of it in the final movie, but none of the Buenos Aires thing. But that's, um, that's the incredible thing about you. So you saw it and it was fully dressed oh, and yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were staying at whatever hotel I forget we were at. We go down to the Savannah College of Art and Design Film Festival every year. Yeah. And um, I, th I want to say we were down there during that And that, that was time. going on. Yeah, that was absolutely going on when we were shooting down there. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I saw the whole thing dressed. And they were like, yeah, Ant-Man and the Wasp was filming. Here. Yeah. And I thought, oh, cool, if I run into you while we're going around. So I was curious what I you had that all set up for. Cut it. No, that's okay. It's still the movie still works. Thank you. <laughs> so, all right. So so while we wait for your guys' next creative uh, creative projects, everybody can go back and revisit uh, the amazing film that you gave us twenty years ago, almost to the day. And uh, and having revisited, I can tell everybody it still holds up. Thank it still you. leaves you uh, just sort of bouncing as as you walk away from it. And uh, you guys caught lightning in a bottle with that one. It was really great. So, oh, thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks very yeah. much. No problem. I appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, guys. We, we really appreciate it. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Nice talking to you. All right. Take it easy, guys. I cannot thank Peyton Reed and Jessica Bendinger enough for coming on and celebrating Brigant On. It's one of those comedies that I love. Uh, it's just fun to go back and revisit that comedy, see what makes it stand the test of time. And it was so much fun for them to uh, come on and join the show. So thank you guys for listening. And we will see you on the main show soon. I don't know how to end it. I really don't know how to end these things anymore. I'm at a loss. Thanks a lot, Christopher Nolan. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.